Welcome to the Fatherhood Challenge Podcast. The Fatherhood Challenge is a movement to awaken and inspire fathers everywhere to take great pride in their role and to challenge society to understand how important fathers are to the stability of an environment and culture. We're going to encourage and challenge each other to step up and do courageous things that make our families and communities better places. So let's get to it. Thank you so much for joining me. It is always good to have you with me. And this episode is going to be a little bit different, probably a bit hard hitting for some. So I just kind of want to just prepare you for that. But I think what you're about to hear is absolutely essential for you to hear and listen very carefully to it. We're going to hear a very fascinating story of not only a story of abandonment, but we're also going to hear a story of healing and a story of redemption. There'll be a lot to learn from this. So I appreciate the fact that you are, you're willing to listen to this all the way through. So my guest today, his name is Joshua Hester, and he is my pastor as well. Um, and a very, very great friend of mine. And I feel very, very blessed and very, very fortunate to have him in my life. And so Joshua is going to tell his story uh, and explain a little bit about what his background was like growing up, the, the home and the environment he was in. And, uh, and then we'll go from there with the rest of his story. Joshua, thank you so much for being with me. Uh, well, A, it's good to be here. Uh, it's an honor. Thank you for having me. Let's start with uh, your childhood uh, growing up. What was your, what are your earliest memories as a child? Yeah, my earliest memories are uh, from Portland, Oregon, which is where we were living when I was probably three or four. I think that's probably my earliest memory running around our house. And uh, my mom at that time was married to a man named Mark, but that relationship uh, didn't last long term, became abusive and very dangerous. And our household, basically from that moment, as far as I remember, was fairly unstable. Lots of ups and downs, lots of moving around. It was pretty crazy. Um, my mom and I and my sister, I have a younger sister. She's two years younger than me. And I love my sister. Her name is Kayleen. And we moved uh, around a lot in Oregon. Most of my childhood was in Oregon. And we moved to the little town of Long Creek, Oregon. It's in eastern part of Oregon, kind of very country, very rural. Uh, the town has like 120 people. And uh, my mom uh, had a lot of different men in her life. In fact, the other day I was doing my registration for my car. And they, you know how when you do your registration, no, no, it's for my license. They have those fancy licenses with the star on them, right? You can use them mm -hmm. for travel. So to do one of those, you have to share your uh, birth certificate. And I was reminded yesterday as I looked for the documents that I actually have two birth certificates, um, which is pretty crazy. It's because when I was born, my mom didn't even know who my father was. In fact, when she got pregnant with me, there were multiple men that it could have been, right? So she wasn't sure who it was. And just one of the boyfriends decided to kind of step up and he decided to be the dad on the birth certificate. I don't, even, I don't even remember the guy's name. I would have to look at the birth certificate uh, because he was only around for a couple years. Uh, no, actually less than a year. He was around for less than a year. Um, so I had a different last name. I had my mom's last name on that birth certificate. And they broke up a year later. My mom ended up with my sister's dad, whose name is Pat. 
And long story short, I ended up with his last name. So that's why my name is Joshua Hester, uh, which is his name and not Joshua Carlson, my mom's last name. Um, but that relationship with Pat also uh, didn't go well. I remember when I was in fourth grade, we had moved to Seaside, Oregon, and my mom and him were managing a motel. And at that time, my mom was working. so She was so busy all the time. And I became really good friends with a kid down the street. And I remember basically we did our own thing all the time because my mom worked all the time. And my dad was, well, my dad, my father figure at that time, Pat, he was high all the time. So basically we didn't really have parents that could give full attention to us. So I remember basically living at my friend Jesse's house a lot of the time. I mean, a couple days at a time and then we'd go home and back and forth. Finally, in fourth grade, uh, no, in third grade, him, my mom and Pat uh, got divorced, and we moved to a small, small house down downtown in Seaside, and that house was so small that my sister and I shared a room, my mom had another room, and there, were, there was mold on the wall, the roof was leaking, uh, it was kind of in a bad part of town, and because, because my mom was single, she worked literally a three i think three jobs i mean she worked so hard for us but of course she was working so much that she was always busy and i remember literally i would spend all day running around town and this is crazy when i think about it you know when when i was a kid it seemed normal somehow but looking back on it i i imagine a fourth grader or a third grader riding his bike around town by himself with his friends all day uh, like we would climb in, in seaside um when you go towards the beach it actually kind of goes uphill a little bit and all the buildings are kind of like staircases, you know? So my friends and I would kind of sneak to the back of those buildings and climb on the roofs and jump around. And it was pretty crazy. Finally, my mom met a man at a bar and his name was Gary. Uh, they ended up getting married. He lived with us for, for a while in Seaside, but my mom got a job offer back in Long Creek, that little town of 200 people. And she was excited. So her and Gary, who, by the way, Gary was 26 years older than her, they basically got married out of convenience because she was the young trophy wife and he was the guy who could pay our bills because he was ex-military and also got retirement stuff. So he just paid the bills. Um, but they were married and they got together. They moved to Long Creek with us kids and that was fourth grade for me. By the time we moved to that town, my mom, the job offer that my mom had was taken away. Somebody else had gotten the job. So now we're in this town of 200 people. The nearest Walmart is 90 miles away. And us kids basically, you know, my mom didn't have anything to do. So she would sit around and long story short, she started drinking more and more and more. And this went on for three years or so. And at that time, I remember my mom was drunk so often that I would be gone for literally four days straight. I would go to my friend JR's or my friend Tyler's house and I would say, hey, mom, I'm going to go to JR's house. And she's like, OK, just make sure, you know, let me know if anything happens. And I'd come back two days later or three days later and check in and make sure I was OK. And that was basically it. Um, I remember I remember one time and this this image in my mind really stuck with me. And I think it it, it affected a lot of my future. But she um, was drunk one day and I came home. She was sitting on the stairwell towards my bedroom. Like I lived upstairs in the attic and she was sitting on the stairway and she was so drunk, you know, she could hardly sit up. I mean, she was so drunk, she could hardly balance to sit on the stairs. 
And she was just saying, you don't, she was sitting there kind of crying, kind of often when my mom got drunk, she would get sad and depressed, you know? So she was sitting there kind of crying, kind of moaning. And then she would say, you don't get it. You just don't get it. And I look back on it and it turns out my mom was processing things. You know, she, she had so many difficult moments in her past when she was a kid that she never dealt with and that it was terrifying to deal with. So the only time she would emotionally even look at the issue was when she was drunk. And so every time she got drunk, um, she would get very apologetic, very remorseful, very much thinking about her past. And she was saying, you don't get it. And what she was trying to tell me was that her past was so bad that this was the only way she could cope, right? It was the only way she could deal with all of her pain because she wasn't dealing with it with a counselor. She wasn't getting advice from friends. She wasn't actually processing the trauma from her past. Instead, she was trying to numb it. And so she was sitting there, you don't get it. You just don't, you just don't get it. So I decided um, that I would get it. Um, and it, this didn't come to fruition for years. But the, I remember looking back now, I can say that that was a moment in my life where I decided, you know, if I don't get it, and maybe that's a problem, well, then I should get it. I need to I need to understand. I need to understand biology. I need to understand psychology. I need to understand spiritual things. And the crazy thing is at this whole time, while we were in Long Creek and my mom, Long Creek, Oregon, and my mom is getting more and more drunk and my stepdad is too. I had a friend who lived two blocks away and he was the son of the pastor of the Sunday church. And this pastor was amazing. He literally bought the old bar in town, which was across the street from our house. And he turned it into a youth group. And this youth group was crazy. Like I would, I, I would go in and there was a ping pong tables. There were pool tables. There was old, um, uh, like, like Pac-Man and all of those arcade type games. And then he had this huge TV with a big sofa and they would, they would be playing, you know, modern Christian music, like Skillet and stuff like that. And I remember thinking like, this was the one place where I learned about God that I felt comfortable because it was safe. It was fun. And every time he would open it, like he would open it on Sunday afternoon. He would open it on Wednesday, he would open it on Friday, and he would open it on Saturday. I mean, it was open like all the time. And since I lived across the street, I would go there. And in fact, it was amazing. This town had 200 people. And out of a town of 200 people, there were over 30 kids going to this youth group. I mean, it was packed. And we all were crazy kids. I mean, a lot of our parents were alcoholics or druggies or etc. You know, we, we came from tough homes. But this pastor, like, created a safe space for us to be kids and to enjoy music and to talk and to play games. And every time he opened the building, he would do a devotional. And that's where I first learned about Jesus and about God in any really meaningful way. His son became my friend and they would invite me to their house. They would um, take me out shooting squirrels, which is something you do in Eastern Oregon. We, we take 22 rifles and go in the back of a pickup truck and you go and shoot squirrels that are eating the farmer's crops. So we'd go out and do that, and he would, you know, kind of make sure we were safe. He did all that type of stuff, and I remember thinking, you know, this family has something, has something that I don't have. Like, they're there for each other. The parents are there for each other. Um, I remember thinking how impressive Jeremiah, their son, was. He was my friend. He was, like, I was very competitive, and he was better than me at everything, which kind of annoyed me, but I knew it was because he was supported. Like, 
I loved basketball and he was the better basketball player. He was better at school. In fact, I would work so hard to beat him and maybe one out of five times I would beat him, like get a better grade than him in something. But he would almost always do better than me in school. And But he didn't do it in an arrogant way. He didn't do it in a mean way. He did it he did it because he believed in in using all of his talents and all of his gifts and his parents supported him. And just seeing that like positive way of winning, that positive way of growing, becoming more. And then the way they loved me and brought me into their life. That was kind of the first, um, the first time that I saw a father really change the life of his children in such a positive way. Like he was their foundation. He was safe and he wasn't a perfect man, but Man, he he loved them, and he was a good man. Uh, so that went on for a couple years in Long Creek. So by this time, I'm like in fifth, sixth grade. And so I'm kind of living two lives. Like I have all my friends who are kind of crazy. I mean, you know, like sleeping together, doing out, you know, drinking, smoking. You know, and we're sixth and seventh graders. It's pretty intense. And I remember in seventh grade, the beginning of seventh grade, I had a sleepover at a friend's house. And there were probably six or eight of us. And across the street from his house, which was also across the street from my house, we were kind of at a triangle from each other, was this uh, local store, a small store. It's kind of like a gas station store, but without the gas. And we figured out that the front window of that store wasn't actually a window. It was a door that they had put the bottom half. They had covered it with wood to make it look like a window. And we figured out that if you take the wood off, which was easy to do, you just move a latch, then you can actually just open the doors. Like they literally didn't lock this store at night. And we figured that out. So that night we decided to break in. We stole hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of dollars of things, like six kids, right? We um, stole food and alcohol and whatever we, whatever we could get our hands on. And I was kind of just a follower in this whole thing. I, I, I enjoyed it. Obviously it was fun. It was exciting. It was, it was, you know, dumb kid stuff and it was selfish, but we did it. We stole. And for like two months, nobody knew we got away with it. And then somebody turned us in. So I ended up getting, uh, had to go to juvenile detention for a couple days just to scare me. I had to pay like $250 back and work 50 hours of community service. I think something like that. And so, you know, now my life is kind of heading down the same track that my friends and my mother and all of that. And at the same time, my mom's alcohol is getting worse and worse. And this is kind of the situation. My sister and I, like my sister at this time, I was in seventh grade. She was in fifth grade and she's already smoking and drinking. And my mom is drinking more and more. And one day she takes me to the store. This is after I got in trouble with stealing. And she takes me to the store and the store is 35 miles away. So it's quite a drive and she is completely drunk. I mean, just totally, um, she could, she could stand up, you know, but that was about it. So she gets in the car, we're driving, we make it about 30 miles. And I remember outside of town, it it goes from 30 miles to 45 to 55 miles an hour. By the time we get to the 55 mile an hour sign, we're still doing 30. And my mom is just like swerving all over this two lane highway. It's a very busy highway. And I remember this as clear as day. I'm in seventh grade. My mom is drunk and I'm having to grab the steering wheel to keep us from hitting somebody. And praise the Lord, somebody called the cops on us. And my mom got got taken in and I ended up with my sister getting taken to foster care. And, you know, this whole time, 
like our whole life is kind of being thrown up. You know, we don't know where things are going to land, how it's going to turn out. And we go from foster home to foster home. I think we went to two or three homes. And finally, this woman takes us in. I mean, she called the foster care facility, takes us into her house, and she lives two miles out of this town of Long Creek, which is a town of 200 people. So she's like 40 miles from the nearest uh, grocery store and 95 miles from the nearest Walmart. I mean, this is in the middle of nowhere. She lives on a farm and she's like 63 years old. The amazing thing is she did it because when she heard about us kids in the news, she saw on the newspaper that we had been taken in. She remembered my mom because this lady had, had been my mom's first grade teacher like 30 years before. She started praying for us and she decided that she wasn't going to take us in, but she was going to find someone to take us in. And so every night she would lay in bed and she would think of people in that town that she had grown up in. She would think of people and say, well, could they take them? Could they take them? Could they take them? She couldn't find anybody. And God was putting on her heart to take us, but she kept ignoring it. Finally, she couldn't sleep. And then the next night she couldn't sleep. And then the third night at the end, she said to God, fine, if you want me to take these kids, let me sleep. And I will call DHS in the morning and I will get the kids. Well, she called. Two weeks later, I'm at her house and she took us in. She was a Seventh Adventist Christian woman and she was amazing. I At first I hated it, right? Because I was used to like roaming the streets by myself, having no boundaries, having no expectations, doing whatever I wanted. And all of a sudden she says, you need to be home. You know, I'm going to drop you off with your friends and I'll be back in two hours. Right. And I thought that that was crazy. I really did. I thought, what? Well, how can you be so controlling and only let us play for two hours? I had been used to four days at a time, right? So she starts teaching us boundaries. She start, and she's loving us. She's patient. She's kind. She starts giving me money. Like I would, I would mow the lawn and she would give me $20, right? But she wouldn't give me the money. She would put it in a little book, like a bank account. And then if I wanted money, I had to ask for the money. And she would give me the money and she would take it out of the little book, just like a bank account. She taught me about money, all of these things. And then finally, my mom went through rehab and she did great. She got out of rehab and we go and live with her for eighth grade, for my eighth grade year. And I'm living with my mom and I'm still connected to this Adventist woman, this, this foster lady. We live with her for eight months. And then I go back and live with my mom for eighth grade. But I remembered this woman, her name was Alita and she changed my life. Um, throughout eighth grade, I did all the sports possible. I, I was trying to figure out who I was as a man. I remember comparing myself to all the different, all the different boys. And I was, I was short and my, I was very skinny and I had a really big head. So I was like five feet tall and my head was like full size, but my body was still tiny. And so they called me a bobblehead. And uh, so that whole year was me trying to get muscular and prove myself as a man, even though I had no example of what a man looked like. In fact, I can honestly tell you that until my 10th grade year, which I'll, I'm going to get to the, the really the, the amazing part of this story soon. Um, until my 10th grade year, my greatest father figure was, I kid you not, probably Mel Gibson. <laughs> like, hmm. I, right? I'd watched all the Lethal Weapon movies and, uh, you know, all of the stuff he did, the the Patriot and We Were Soldiers and all of these movies that I loved, right? They're still great. Uh, you know, a lot of them are still pretty impressive movies. Um, He was my father figure. So I go to this I'm going through eighth grade. I did six sports that year, every sport possible. There was a week during the school year I wasn't in a sport. And I, I look back, it was really some attempt to become manly, to be strong, to, you know, my vision of what a man was, whatever that meant. 
And at the end of eighth grade, I started realizing that all of my friends were starting to like really become uh, delinquents for better lack of a better term. They, they were drinking, they were sleeping around. Some of them were going to juvie. They, um, they were telling me crazy stories of things they had done. And I thought to myself, like, this doesn't seem right. There's something wrong about this. Cause I, I remembered Jeremiah, that kid from when I was in fourth grade, I remembered uh, like fifth grade, sixth grade. That is, I remembered his life and I thought, that's what I wanted, but they're not going to get there. Like these people, these kids, if they keep doing what they're doing, they're going to end up like just doing nothing with their life. And it's going to, and it's not going to be fulfilling. I don't want that. I want what Jeremiah had. Um, so time goes by, eighth grade is over and we start visiting the high school. Now I end up visiting the local high school and I thought, well, that's cool. I'm going to play football, whatever. But Alita, this woman, takes me to what the Seventh-day Adventist Church calls a camp meeting. And a camp meeting is where all the churches from the area come together and they have a big meeting. And all the kids come together and they do games and they do they go to a water park and they do they play music. And I thought it was pretty awesome. And I remember thinking, how cool is this place? Because the camp meeting was at a high school, a Christian high school. And I thought, this place is beautiful. They have a basketball team. Nobody here, like they're not doing drugs. They're living, they have a purpose in their life. I want this, right? I want this. This this is something extra from from what I have. There's something here that I don't have. Um, And I told my mom after we got back from this camp meeting, I told my mom I wanted to go to school there. And she, she just looked at me like I was crazy. But she said, well, let me talk to Alita, the foster parent. Let me talk to her. And so she did. And then I talked to Alita about it. And Alita said, well, Josh, I don't know. Uh, let's pray about it. Now, what you have to understand, and this this school cost $13,000 a year. And we lived in a foster, we lived in a trailer court. We didn't even have a car. My mom was just getting out of rehab. We barely had enough money to pay the bills. I mean, it was it was pretty intense. And so the idea of me going to a school that cost that much seemed crazy. But Alita prayed about it, and we we didn't ask the school until two weeks before school was going to start. We asked them, and they said, well, I don't know. Long story short, somebody donated all of the money for me to go to school that year, except for I had to work 20 hours a week to pay my part of the loan, the, the cost. My mom had to give like $100 a month, and my grandma, uh, my foster parent at the time, Alita, she had to give money too. But this miracle happened. I mean, somebody gave all this money for me to go there. I went there, and the first year, I hated it. They had so many rules. I didn't fit in. I didn't know all the language. Like, they talked about the Bible and stuff a lot. I didn't get it. And uh, I became the starting point guard for the basketball team. And I remember I would practice three hours a day, plus I would go to basketball practice, like the actual practice. So I would literally, my life was basketball. And I had an anger problem. I was flirting with all the girls because I was so insecure. Um, that I had to prove that I was handsome and that I was manly and stuff. So I was trying to get girlfriends all the time. I was, I was just on this journey trying to become a man. The January of my freshman year, this girl comes to class and she moved in from, from out of town. And she's really sad about moving there because she missed her school. She's crying. Um, uh, Jonathan, have you have you ever seen those big mats that they use for gymnastics that are big and poofy? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, I was in okay. gymnastics. Those things are really thick too. Yeah, yeah. So she she during um during PE she wouldn't go to PE. She would just go and sit on the, one of those big poofy mats and she would cry 
um, mm. and because she was so sad about moving, you know, that she couldn't handle it anymore. And so I went over and I befriended her just out of feeling sorry for her and partially because I thought she was cute, you know, it kind of mixed motives there as a high schooler, <laughs> but I did, I felt sorry for her. And so we became friends. And one day she says to me, she says, Josh, you're just like my dad. You need to meet him. And then I figure out that he's a pastor. <laughs> I, th- I thought to myself, wow. oh yeah, I'm just like a pastor. Sure. And at this time, like I have crazy anger problems. I'm flirting with all the girls. I'm obsessed with sports, like whatever. But Jelaine saw something in me and she said, you're just like my dad. You need to meet him. I went over to their house with another friend and Jelaine, um, who this girl who was sad. And we went to their house and him and I connected like she was right. We had so much in common and I couldn't believe it that a pastor would connect to me. Right. I, I, it was like, this did not make sense at all. My whole idea of religion you know, I had those great experiences with Jeremiah as a kid and his dad was the pastor who did the youth group and that was good. But most of my experiences of religion were like what I saw on TV with like Catholic nuns or some angry bishop, you know, like they kind of put Christianity in a bad light. So I just thought, saw saw it as that way. And so when this pastor became my friend, it really was surprising to me. He ends up really taking me under his wing. Um, We studied the Bible together and he would come to my dorm room right before breakfast at like 6.30 in the morning. We, we woke up really early at this school and he would study the Bible with me three days a week for an hour. And because um, I was really curious about the Bible, um, my friend Jeremiah and the foster parent who was Christian, like they really talked to me about Jesus and they got me interested. So he, so this pastor, um, the, the girl's dad, start studying with me. And I'm just, my mind is opening up. And for over a year, we studied the Bible together. And he ends up baptizing me. And then after I'm baptized, so I was baptized my sophomore year. And when I was baptized, I had been asked to speak for a, an evangelistic series, um, which is like a, a, a Bible talk about, about God's plan for the world and trying to teach people about Jesus. And I rejected it because the series was during the basketball tournament. And I thought that I would have to miss the basketball tournament, which was true. I would have to miss the basketball tournament. So I said, no, no way, not doing it. And I was warming up for the varsity basketball team when I got this sense that I needed to go. I needed to do the series. And, and I looked down at the baseline of the basketball court and the man who had asked me to speak, this evangelist, was standing at the baseline. And I just, like the Holy Spirit just hit me. And he's like, Josh, you need to do this now or you're never going to stand up for God. Like you've been studying, you've been learning, you've been growing, but now's your moment to make a choice. And I ignored it. So we were doing layups and I missed the I missed the layup and the ball rolls to the baseline. And I, I had this huge, I I picked up the ball and saw the guy and I had this huge sense to do it. And I ignored it. What do you think led him to choose you? That the man, um, you know, it's crazy. So we, we did all this Bible studies, right. And like God put it on his heart to be my father. He, and he had never done this before. Obviously, um, he saw that we were similar. We connected and we had a special, like, deep relationship even before 
he did that. Like we had a lot of similar backgrounds because he actually came from a, um, a pretty tough family from the Northwest also from Washington. And, you know, I don't know why he did it other than I think God just put it on his heart and he saw that he could, you know, share his wisdom and his view of what it means to be a man with someone. Um, in fact, it's, it's crazy. You know how, like when you, when you're falling in love and you meet a girl and you, you want to marry them and you want to build this relationship that at some point you have to ask, right? You have to propose. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like the relationship is building, but there has to be a moment where you both actually overtly say it. And he basically proposed to me as to be his son. He said, you know, he, he literally after a year and a half of no, so we did a year and a half of Bible studies. He baptized me. Then that next summer I worked for him at his church, uh, doing like youth. I was like a youth pastor. I was 16 at the time. Um, and I did a bunch of stuff in the community working with the poor and stuff. And then that next year is when he basically proposed. I mean, there's no other word for it. Like how often does this happen where, where two, where, where a, a boy needs a father and the father wanted a son. And he just asked me if he said, Josh, I want to be your dad. Um, will you be my son? And I, I said, yes, like I see you as my dad already. You know, it's crazy though. Um, he asked me to be his dad and I accepted and, and we were, that was, you know, that's how things were. But probably six months later, I mean, you know, it's a little fuzzy in my mind now. It's been a while, <laughs> but probably six months later, I remember there was a moment where I felt like I couldn't, I wasn't good enough to be his dad, uh, to be his son. I felt like I was so broken and I didn't know how to, like, for example, I couldn't even tell him with my own words. I couldn't say the words, I love you. Like I couldn't make myself say it. It literally took me a year to say it. And the first time I said it, I I was sitting there and I was thinking about it for 15 minutes before I finally said it. Like I was just, I felt so inept, so not capable of loving someone that I didn't feel like I was good enough to be his son. And so one time, six months after we became father and son, I asked him like, hey, can we, can we go for a walk? And so we're walking out in front of the dormitory where I lived and on the sidewalk under the trees. It was a beautiful day. And I said, you know, I love you and you're awesome, but I don't think I want to be your son because I'm going to just hurt you and I'm going to just, I'm going to just take advantage of you. Um, and I don't want to do that. So I think it's better that we don't, that we don't have any expectations that I'm going to be your son. Like, just let me just be, I just want to be your friend because I, I'm not good enough to be your son. Right? You know, what's interesting about that is that that sounds almost exactly like prayers that I have had with God before. Mm, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And even if like the truth is like, sometimes it might be true, you know, and that's kind of the whole point. Like maybe I wasn't actually good enough to be his son, but he saw my potential and he saw how I could be changed and how I could grow and mature and become a new man. Right. And Mm -hmm. so he saw past all of my shortcomings. And so like I said that to him and I think, and I think God does the same thing. I think God sees us the same way. Like I, I said that to him. I said, I don't think I'm good enough to be your son. I don't think I can be. And he just kind of sat there quietly. You know, of course it hurt him and he didn't really respond. He said, oh, well, you know, 
okay, I'll give you your space then, you know? And so a week goes by and we don't talk or anything really. I mean, and we had been meeting three times a week for an hour and now a week had gone by. We hadn't really talked at all. And finally he calls me. Oh, maybe, yeah, he calls me and he says, no, 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 he didn't call me. He showed up in person. Yeah. And we sat down and he said, um, you know what, Josh, I understand that you are afraid that you're not good enough and maybe, maybe you don't want to be my son and that's your choice. But I just want you to know that from my side, I still see myself as your father. Like I'm still going to be there for you. If you ever need me, I'm still going to love you and I'm still going to provide that for you. And if you don't return, you know, if you don't want to be my son, you know, I can't force that. But I just want you to know from my side, I'm still here and the door is still open and I still love you. And it was like, wow, right? I, <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I, it's like, that's exactly what God does all the time for us. And I had never experienced it until that moment where like he chose me because of who he is and because of who he sees me that I could be. That, that, that I am now, like he loves me now and he wants me now and he's not going to force me, but, but if I even want at all to be in his life, he'll accept me. And so it was that moment where I really saw what a father's love is. I mean, you know, he really, I don't know, changed my life. Um, and of course now, I mean, that was what, uh, that was 12 years ago. Wow. That was 12 years ago. It's crazy. But since then, I mean, we've, he was at, he did my wedding. Uh, he preached for my wedding. He was there for my wedding. Um, he, we sang together at my wedding. We've gone on vacations together. I, I, I go to his house for Christmas and for Thanksgiving sometimes. And I like he, they are my family. His wife is my mom. His daughters are my sisters. Like they have totally taken me into their family. In fact, this Thanksgiving, I was at his daughter, Shalina's um, husband's family's house. Right. So, um, yeah, they, they totally took me under their wings and I've learned, I have learned so much from him that I can't even, I can't even put it into words. Like every, not every, but most of the better things about who I am as a man are because of him. Uh, and especially like most of the better things about why I'm a, even a partially effective pastor is because of him. I mean, really, if it wasn't for him, I don't know who I would be, but it wouldn't be nearly the person I am today. It's really interesting on past episodes, I've talked over and over like a broken record of just how much power that fathers wield. You can either use that power for evil or you can use that power for good, but it is a right. tremendous amount of power that, that actually has the effect, even genetically, to affect future generations. Um, yeah. and, and there's so many parallels. I, I just keep hearing it over and over. So many parallels between, between my experience with God and what I experienced and what you experienced uh, with, with your father. Um, and it's interesting. I just did a episode on, uh, on surrogate fatherhood. And mm. here we have a classic example of what, what that means and what that looks like and a beautiful example. And that surrogate fatherhood is also paralleling uh, the experience of, of God, our heavenly father. Um, but you were talking about earlier, the conversation you had with him where you were 
when you had told him, you know, I, I don't feel worthy to be your son. I'm just going to mess up and I'm just going to take advantage of you. So I, I think it's best that, that we don't go that route. And you're talking about his emotions of how he felt at hearing those words. And then the only thing that made me think of is Micah six, eight, um, where it says, um, he, he has shown me what is good and what the Lord requires of me and whatnot. And some of us are familiar with that. Mm, Suggest love mercy, walk humbly with your God. Right. You know, and, and that's good and all, but there are some chapters before that, that I don't like to read. I've read them, but I don't, I don't like to read them. And that's because they make me very uncomfortable. Mm. And the reason why they make me uncomfortable, it, it, just read it and it'll make you get a big lump in your throat because it is the point where Israel does the same thing mm. and turns away. Yeah. And, um, and it hurts God and you, it's not very often that I, that I can recall, but this is one point that stands out where God literally just vocalizes and verbalizes his emotion at that. We, we just, we have our own images of what God might do and that, but we never find the little bits where he actually says how he feels. Mm. And that's what one moment where he, you can almost feel him crying and saying, what have I done to make you so tired of me? Yeah. And yeah. that, that hurts to read. And then he goes on and he says, you know, he's like, I did this for you. I did this for you. And I did it because specifically because I wanted you to know, and I wanted to prove myself faithful to you. You broke mm-hmm. your contract. I held up my end of it. And I did yeah. that because I wanted you to see who I am and, yeah. you're, and you're tired of me. It just, you can just feel that. Yeah. Where, where God, where God just, he kind of, he really opens up in those chapters. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, there are places in the Bible where he's like, I like in one sentence, he's like, I will, I will destroy you. I will throw you out. I will burn your blah, blah, blah. Right. And then in the next one, he's like, but my mercy has like caused me to relent and I will love you and I will woo you and I will draw you to myself and I will win you back. Right. It's like, it's amazing how the prophets were able to show God's feelings by saying like, really, I am, it hurts him so deeply that if he were to give you what you deserve, like what you actually deserve, he, you would be destroyed. You would suffer. Like that's what you deserve because you have rejected God himself. You have turned against what is love. You've turned against what is good. But because of God's goodness, even though we deserve those things, he's going to choose to try to redeem us anyways, right? Like he doesn't give up. He, he's like, you know what? You don't, you don't want to be my son. Okay. I'm going to be your father. I'm going to love you. I'm going to hold up my side of this bargain and I'm going to love you to a, to a level that is almost crazy. Like when I look back at how many times I've done wrong things and then I, I learn about God's love for me, that he still is wooing me, still chasing after me. It's like, it, I, I don't know. I think maybe I would have given up before then. It's amazing like, how your, how your father modeled that for you. Yes. I mean, I, I literally, when I think of God's love, I see it so beautifully there. I see it. I wish I could have the better, better words for it. Sometimes words fail me because it's like you, it's like I could, I was, I I could taste God's love. I could feel it. I could, you know, there's no better way to describe it almost. It was like the, you know, when you're in the, in the middle of a beautiful song that you love and it just gets to that uh, melodic crescendo and it's like the whole 
all of the beauty in that sound is just wrapping around you. Mm -hmm. When he said those words, it was like he was singing the song of God's love to me, Mm -hmm. which I know that sounds super, you know, almost overly poetic, but it's like it clicked. It was like, wow, he actually, he actually cares about me beyond my performance, right? Like he doesn't want to be my dad because I'm an impressive person. He wants to be my dad because of the value and the goodness he sees in me and who I am as a person and what I already am and who he is, his ability to see that. Like that's part of God is that he can see his handiwork, his fingerprints on us, even when we don't. Hmm. And that's amazing to me. Like he believes in us when we do not believe in ourselves. Like the reason God wants to save us is because he is so good and so powerful that even though we are messed up, he can still redeem us. Like he can still make us awesome. Where, and that, where did that experience lead next? Wow. Um, it took me a while to take it in. You know, I, I've learned a lot. So remember I said how my mom said, you just don't get it right. So I have, I kind of have this obsession with psychology and how these things all work. And, um, as far as humans, emotional ups and downs and why addiction happens and all that stuff. Right. So there's this thing where boys have anger, I, girls too. Right. But for me, I was a boy. So I'm going to say boys have anger because there is this sense of a lack of control. Like if you grow up in an environment that is unstable, then there's a huge tendency to have anger problems because anger is 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 like your body jumping to, oh no, the world is falling apart. I need all this energy to to push back, to fight it back. I need to fight off the bear or the wolves or the people attacking me, right? And you and then you start having this anger towards lots of things um, outside of your own control. So somebody, you know, like whenever I would mess up in basketball, you know, because I loved basketball, but basketball for me was my way of showing my manhood. So if I and that, and I didn't have any foundation of like a father who loved me and a mother who was there for me. Rather, I was abandoned pretty much in a lot of ways and my, by my father. And then my mother was absent a lot of the time in many ways, not because of her own fault, but definitely affected me. And so I, d- I didn't have this foundation, a secure foundation. And so in my mind, the world is an unstable place and I need to prove that I am good enough. And so when I messed up in basketball, immediate anger. I mean, and it would just well up inside of me. Like it was like, it was like somebody, it's like that, that feeling you get when you stub your toe and it just, oh, I can't believe that just happened. Mm-hmm. But, but it was like that over every little thing. And it was beyond my, it was beyond my control. It was a symptom of something deeper. And as I started understanding a father's love and that I was loved, all of a sudden, now that the anger didn't go away right away, but let me tell you the symptoms of this sense of instability went away because the instability in a lot of ways went away. So as I learned more about God's love and, and about a physical human father's love, his name is Jim, by the way, my dad, I call him dad now. As I learned about his love, then I, my world, my, my inner world, the way I saw the, the world around me wasn't so unstable and I didn't need to be anger. And I saw the foolishness of that anger um, so there was both sides where I learned about it technically in books and understanding how the human mind works. But then I experienced a stable environment 
that told me, oh, wow, this anger isn't necessary. So his love over time changed the very mechanism, the, the center of how I operated in the world. And I became like, it's crazy that I, I've been told this probably five or 10 times. And every time I hear it, I am taken aback. I'm just amazed because people tell me, Josh, you're such a chill person. Or wow, you're so calm. <laughs> and that's like, I look back at what I was. And I can tell you, I was not a calm person by any stretch of the imagination. I, I was an angry person. And so that's just for me evidence that God's love, whether it's through his word, through the Holy Spirit, or through another person, showing me what a father is, which, which is kind of your, out, your blueprint for how the structure of the world works. When I saw that that is love, I don't know, it changed, it gave me this sense of peace. It gave me stability that I didn't have. So I guess that's probably the best answer. Did you ever feel, did that ever make it easier for you to come to a place of, of being, of being ready to return that love? Mm. Well, I mean, the short answer is yes. Right. But I mean, look, I saw that, I saw that when my dad loved me, it, it helped. It, it was a blessing to him too. And it was beautiful. And everybody, everybody benefited from it. And then when I tried, you know, like I, now that I've been married, um, I've been married over a year, just a little over a year. And that type of love where even when my, my wife falls short in my mind, whether or not it's true, that's almost irrelevant. But in my mind, she might fall short. Right. But I still choose to love her because I saw it in my dad and I saw it in God. And I saw that it's like planting seeds. And then she, now she's going to like she's going to blossom even more beautifully because she has my support. But if I if I had this sense of instability, right, if I had this fear that the whole world was going to fall apart and I was if I was being controlled by anger, then I wouldn't be able to support her. I would end up actually hurting her instead. And like how many men do you know of or have stories have you heard where where that's what the men do right where they just destroy the hopes and dreams of their wife and it's it it is like it's hard to say this but the truth is like sometimes things aren't our fault like i look at my mom's past right my mom went through some crazy stuff that i can't even imagine and so a lot of the struggles she has are because of that past um, and those things are not her fault, right? The fact that those people did those things to her are not her fault. However, they are her responsibility. And, and that's hard to say. Like, it's not my fault that my mom wasn't available or that my father abandoned me. But it's my responsibility to not continue the cycle and to change and to grow and to become a, a whole person. And, and the reason is because nobody else can. I mean, you know. Like, Jonathan, you're a great guy, but you can't come into my head and make me a great guy. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. I have to choose to learn and grow and to be changed. And so um, when you have that sense of stability, like someone like my, my, my dad comes into my life and shows me love, shows me stability, shows me a place where I can rest. And because changing is hard, like becoming a, a like not choosing your anger when you when you have chosen your anger your whole life is scary. Like it's the sense of I'm letting down my defenses. I'm letting down the thing that makes me feel powerful. Because let me tell you, when you let your anger control you, in that moment, it feels powerful. It's not powerful. It's foolish and, and it's destructive, but it feels powerful. So you have to have something that gives you a sense of safety and a sense of like, 
um, of purpose and direction. You know, it's kind of the kind of the carrot and the stick, so to speak, you know, like you need a goal that looks more beautiful than the way you live. You need the carrot, but you also need the stick. Like you need to know that the the destructive lives around you are because of the choices people are making and because of this anger inside of them. And if you choose that anger, you're going to end up in that same path. It's going to look ugly. So you have to kind of define your own, like the own worst version of you and see what that could be. And so that's, that's one thing that helped. Like when I saw beauty, when I saw love, when I saw first Jeremiah, that, that kid in, in middle uh, elementary school and his family, I saw something more beautiful. I saw something more meaningful and it gave me a vision. It gave me an image of what I could walk towards. And that's kind of what opened me up to the Bible and to God's work because all of the beautiful things in their life, I believe were from God. And so really when I was, when I saw, when they were nice to me and they were kind to me and they, and I opened myself up to them in many ways, I was opening myself up to what came from God. And so then I was more primed and ready to open up to God. And so it's all helped me. It's kind of been a journey, you know, um, it's hard, you know, it's funny when I talk about this stuff, it's, it's easy to get too descriptive because in my mind, you know, these moments with my dad and these moments with other men who were good and strong and loving and patient, those moments are full of so many colors and so many nuances of, of how, how important they were to me that it's hard to describe. I don't know if that makes sense. It does make sense. We understand or we interpret surrogate fatherhood sometimes as just being one person uh, that steps in that role um, and that it's a continuous thing. But there are other forms of surrogate fatherhood um, because, you know, some men are good at other things and some not good at other things. I'll give you an example of my life. I had no one around to teach me anything about mechanics, about auto mechanics. Mm. I, this is something that most fathers just do intuitively with their sons. I had no one to teach me that stuff. So I had no idea how to change my oil, how to change my brakes, um, how to do tune-ups. And these are basic things that normally every man should know how to do if you're going to own a vehicle and things that fathers teach. But I was very, very fortunate. Um, I was taking piano lessons, um, as a teenager, and um, my piano teacher's husband was very aware of my situation and uh-huh. uh, he would have me show up early for lessons or stay late. And we would just go out in the garage and we would just work on my car and take care of things that needed to be done. Or if there was something on his vehicle that needed to be done, he would have me stick around and help me with that. So I would learn how to do it on my own. So no, he was not my full-time surrogate father. But the one thing that he was very, very good at, he made sure that I, I learned how to do those very same skills. And he knew I, I was lacking and needed to know that. So there are many ways to step up if you're in that position to be able to help some other kid or some other teenager that you know is missing that in their life. Yeah. Well, and so have you ever heard of um, Jordan Peterson? Mm-hmm. Okay, so I I listen to quite a bit of his stuff because uh, I love psychology and he has a lot of interesting things. He talks a lot about archetypes, which is like in um, the ideal version of something, right? Mm-hmm. And so as Christians, we believe that Jesus is the ideal man, right? He and that's why like the Bible talks about him as the second Adam, mm-hmm. right? Because he's Adam was the the father of all of humanity. He's the ideal man before sin. He was perfect, and then he fell, 
So now the second Adam, Jesus, is the ideal man who actually didn't fall to sin, right? And that's kind of the story. But sometimes what we miss there is like, he's the ideal man in the sense that um, our fathers are supposed to be. Because if the world had never fallen to sin, then our fathers would be amazing versions of what God is. Like they, it'd be like, it'd be like, they'd be like mini, their, their hearts would be just as loving as God's is. In his image. Exactly. And so then when we were, we, when we would be born in that situation, we would look at them and it's like our, our mind would have the, and maybe I'll use this word, right? The blueprint of the ideal man, which is God. We would have that already there. So then when we got to know God, it's like, it's like a round, it's like the, the round peg in a round hole. It just would fit. But now what happens is we have all these imperfect men in our lives. Um, and we have to sometimes do a little bit of surgery because instead of a round peg, they are like a triangle. And so some of them is ideal. A lot of who they are is ideal is very good, but a lot of them isn't right. So like my, 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 my dad is a great man, but there are some things that even he would admit he's still working on. So sometimes we have to do kind of surgery with the, with the image that we have of the ideal man in our head. Mm. Um, and I'll give you another uh, another way to kind of see this. Like, have you ever noticed how, and I've definitely noticed this because I grew up a lot, around a lot of women, but how women um, tend to marry someone just like their father and men tend to marry someone just like their mother? Yes, definitely. Right? So my, both, like my sister tends to, and, and she struggles to marry a good man because her dad was my adopted dad who was not a very good man. So her idea of the ideal man is in many ways shaped by him, by this broken, alcoholic, uh, semi-abusive, non, you know, um, just non-existent in many days because of the alcohol. That's the ideal man in her head. So then when she goes and she wants to find a mate, her, her automatic response to what is attractive to her is that. Even though she knows logically that this man is not going to be good for her, her her image in the back of her head, right, says this is what a man is. And in fact, I've seen her date good men, like men who are loving and hardworking and and available emotionally and stuff. And she would get bored by them because for her, she needs that that rush of the anger of the argumentation of trying to fix someone. And so, what she the only way that she's ever going to get over that is if she goes through her past and sees how this image of what an ideal man is, is wrong. And she directly, like I kind of call in my head, for me, psychologists are kind of like, they're kind of brain surgeons, but it's more of like an emotion surgeon or a, a trauma surgeon or however you want to say it. They're, they're going in with words and with questions. That's what psychologists often do. They ask questions, they help you see things, they guide you. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of read. Re, they're helping you redraw the picture of the ideal mate, for example, if that's the issue they're dealing with. And so that's what that's what awesome people in our lives can do also. So like the the music teacher you had who took you into your into the garage and showed you like this is how you fix a car, right? But when he's doing that, he's not showing you how to fix a car. He's showing you how an educated thoughtful man fixes a car. That's right? true. There's so much in there's so much in there. I mean, that's um 
I guess maybe the word for it is character that's mm. that's being taught. There's there's work ethic. There's so much. There's so many micro character skills that are being taught interwoven with the mechanical. Yes. Yes. Like the Bible says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be changed as your mind is renewed. And that strongly, I mean, passionately tells us that there is a process that goes on here. You know, like it's a, it's not like you become a Christian and then boom, the next morning you're going to wake up and you're going to be floating on in the air and walking on water. Like that's not how it works. And what, what is actually happening is all of those images in your head that are broken about who God is, about what love is, about what a man should be. You know, if you're a father, your idea of what a father is might be actually pretty tyrannical and evil. And it's not because it's not your fault. It's because you grew up with maybe, maybe you grew up with a tyrannical father, or maybe you grew up with an, uh, a father who was distant and aloof, or maybe you grew up with a father who didn't know how to deal with emotions. Or maybe like me, you never even met your father. So you wonder if uh, you can even be a real man. That was my issue. And all of, the, all of that imagery in your head defines when you're a kid what a father is. And so what, what I think God wants us to do as we go through life is to, pick, you know, like to see men like that music teacher. For me, there was a, a professor in college. His name was uh, Jim McClelland. He was a oil painter. I've never seen a man who was so compassionate and full of prayer and love. Like he would just, I went into his office once and he had like 300 pictures of students and he knew all of them by name and he would pray for them. He would go, he would, I think he would pick like 50 a day or something and he would pray for a bunch of them. And then the next day it'd be a different bunch. But like he, he really showed me how a man can by his influence of care and using his strength to support and heal, how that strength can be so good and so healing and so powerful, even more than my uh, adopted or surrogate dad did, right, Jim. Uh, but Jim McClelland, he showed me that. And so I kind of took that. And I that aspect of the image of what a man is, I edited it according to him because he's the best version I've seen. That's that absolutely amazing. Yeah. What is your challenge to to men today? It feels to me like society is very, very hard on men. It's hard on fathers, everything from the workplace to social media to just to mass media in general. Fathers have such an uphill battle and such a challenge and also have a very bad perception and image problem to try to combat as well. And with all of that and all the challenges being placed on, on fathers today, what is the one challenge that you would issue out to every father today? Wow. Every father. Well, since I'm not quite a father yet, but I'll, I'll say to every man, can I do that? <laughs> well, absolutely. I, yeah. yeah it, and yeah. I think your experience probably plays a lot of, a, a lot into that and gives you, you have an insight into this that probably not everybody has. And, yeah. um, so I, I'm really curious to what that, that brings to your perception and what, what your challenge would be to men. Mm. Well, I'll use a, a kind of a clear, uh, unclear example, which I know isn't good, but 
uh, in the Bible, there's a lot of texts and verses and stuff that, and, and some of them are really easy to understand, right? Mm-hmm. And then some of them you read them and you're like, I don't know what that's saying, right? Mm-hmm. But but sometimes they'll be over the same topic, right? So there'll be like a super easy one that says like God is love, and then there'll be another one that's like a whole story, and you're confused, like what is the point of this story? Okay, the the principle when you're studying the Bible is like make sure you use the sim- the the clear texts of the Bible to explain the unclear texts of the Bible, because if if it, if it says God is love here, and then you read this text over here in the same book of the Bible and you don't understand what it means, don't interpret it in a way that that means that God is not love, for example. Does that make sense? That makes sense to me. Okay, so like, you know, use the simple... So, your kids need a place to start. So, they they need to know who they grew up with, what their family was like. They need to have specific expectations and specific boundaries, and they need you to be that boundary and those expectations. Because even if you're a little wrong, it's better for them to have a clear starting point in their life than for them to not really know anything about where they're starting, and they have to kind of invent a starting point. So be in their life and as you're growing and learning, you're going to realize that things you did 10 years ago were imperfect. And my dad has done the same thing. He said, you know, I didn't handle that perfectly. But the fact that he he put himself into my life, it kind of gave me an X on the map, like a starting point. And um, if you don't do that, I mean, well, that's called it's called laissez-faire parenting. And kids who have that struggle with a thousand different things. And that I think that was my biggest issue as a kid. Like my mom and my parents were so kind of hands off that they didn't really give me boundaries and expectations. So I didn't know, I didn't know where to start in life. But once I, once I figured out where I was starting, then I could go on the journey. You know, like you can't use a map if you don't know where the journey is starting. Like if you don't know where you are on the map, you can't use the map to get you somewhere. And so as you help define the world for the kids, like you're kind of showing them where they are on the map, who they are, like if they're strong, if they're weak, if they're tall, if they're skinny, if they're, if they're not patient enough, like if, if, um, if your kid's struggling and they're rude to their, to their siblings, you need to stand up and you need to tell them that things like that, because that's what, that's what people need. They need a starting point. They need to become something, they need to be something so that they can then connect the dots from this dot is who I am today and tomorrow or in five years, I want to be something else. So if I was going to be a parent, I would want to help my kids see the world as I see the world, not because they have to be some sort of reproduction of me, but because otherwise the world is so big that they don't have a starting point and they'll get lost. And in fact, I believe that that's one of the main issues in this world today. Everybody says, just let your kids choose who they want to be. And I, I haven't heard dumber advice in my life. It's like, it, and, and that's not to say you don't let them, you know, choose their interests and stuff like that. But what I mean is, don't, it's kind of like the idea that we're supposed to not give them any guidance and just let them choose everything about their life. It's like, what? They don't know anything. The world is enormous. And you're going to let them just try to walk out in the jungle by themselves? No, no, no. Show them what a safe house looks like. Show them how to make a fire. Show them how to get food and how to fish so they can survive. And then if they want to go and move to the jungle or move to the desert or move to the 
the the highlands of the Siberian Peninsula. You know, it's like, but then they have the tools to do it. That would be my thing. That's a wonderful. That makes, that, that makes a lot of sense. It's it, this is a it's a wonderful point to wrap everything up with. I I think even with what you just said, I still see I still see the parallels with how God parents us because. I always had this image growing up of God as this the stern, uh, the stern being that is just looking for any excuse to, to punish mm. or to strike down or whatever. And I, you know, I've read the Ten Commandments just like everybody else. And then you look at the Ten Commandments, and they they just, you know, if you, especially um, when you're very young, they just look like another set of rules, strict rules to you, and it just looks oppressive. Yeah. And then well, can I can I can I give an image to what I was trying to say? Yes, yes. Uh, it, in, it was in the back of my mind, but I didn't say it. And I think it explains what I'm trying to say even better. Uh, so in the Garden of Eden, right? Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve were given the garden, and so the the Garden of Eden is literally a garden, and it is already created. It's already beautiful. It's already tended by God. Yes, and they were given the space, and then the rest of the world was kind of untended. It was just wild trees and grass. Mm-hmm. You see the picture? So there's like a garden in the middle and then around it is all just kind of untamed wildlife. And so that's what God did. He gave them a space in a garden and he said, you can go to any of these fruit trees. You can eat from any of them. And I want you to name the animals. And so there's like total openness within an enclosed space, right? So there's, there's safety. God created a safe of safe, a place of safety, which, which children and humans need. They need a place of safety, but they also need adventure so they can start, they can learn how to walk to the trees and pick the trees and, and, and name the animals and do things. Um, and then as they grow up, once a child is an adult, 18, whatever, then they leave your own garden and they go to the wilderness and they create their own garden. But they first need to experience the garden that you've already built for them. And children who have a garden that is unbuilt, like you and I had, we didn't really have a father. We didn't have parents who were very, you know, active in our lives. We, it's, it's a struggle for us to define what goodness is, what love is, how to live in this world, what we're supposed to be doing. We never, you know, we don't know what that security is like. Um, but then other, the opposite is kids who are just locked in a, in a box and don't get to explore the, gar- the garden at all. There are kids who are who are suffocated because their parents are too controlling and micromanage their whole life. Right. I think that's a great way to explain it. And I I think it makes a lot more sense, uh, at least to me, in that in that context, mm-hmm. using the garden analogy. And that's ex- that's exactly the way the way it makes sense to me as well. Uh and it does and instead it it paints God in a completely different picture. We don't have the stern image of him. And instead, what we actually have is a very protective and a very caring image of him where, yes, he does want the best for us. He has done everything he can to put these protective measures around us uh, because we we do need that. We do need that to learn and to be able to thrive. And then as we mature, we're able to handle a little bit more beyond that. So I yeah. think that that makes a lot of sense. And I think that's an excellent challenge for for men today and for parents to to just step up and to first of all be present and second not be afraid afraid to provide those boundaries for their own kids because it it is a way of saying you 
you care and you're able to look back on your life now and see where Alita stepped in and became those boundaries Mm. for you that you needed that safety to be able to grow and mature. And Jim became that for you as well. Yeah. Well, and as we pointed out, like in our own experience, like you with the, the music teacher, me with Jim and Alita, the garden, as I was talking about is defined, the boundaries are defined by interaction with, with people who have, who are mature. Mm. So like the, the best way a father can influence his kids to be good is to first be a mature father, a mature person. Um, and then to spend time and, and being with their kids and guiding them in life. Like it's, it, it happens not by laying down a list of rules, but by being those rules, by, by exhibiting those rules, by talking in those rules, um, and then giving them the joy of, of love, of peace, of, of all of those things that happen within the garden. But like you, but like with the teacher, the way that, uh, with the, sorry, the music teacher, the way he influenced you was by spending time with you and doing meaningful things in a meaningful way that represents the garden. That time, uh, you mentioned that that time spent in the times I spent just working on the cars for me, that was, yeah, working on the cars was fun, but the time I spent with him was meaningful. That mm. to me, that was just that interaction and that fellowship was, was very meaningful for me. And yeah, that yeah. was my garden setting. So I wasn't in a situation at that moment where I was under pressure, where I had so much time to get things done and all of that. And I, I, I I just wasn't in that much of a stressful environment. I felt very stress-free when I was there. I could learn without that pressure. And I also got that fellowship where I gained wisdom and I gained knowledge um, in those, in those talks. We, we talked about life. It wasn't even just about cars. There was so much that happened in that valuable time. And so when I look and think about the Garden of Eden, and it talks very specifically about God walking with them and fellowshipping with them Uh in that, in the garden. And that's what is is just so amazing to me. You had that experience with Alita. You had that experience with Jim as well. And that just throws out the challenge with men of just how valuable that, that time is, that fellowship is. If you're a son, it's, it's, you need to make time for that fellowship with, with your parents or with your father. Hmm. And if you're the father, you need to make time for, for your child as well, because you both, yeah. you both need that time mutually. Yeah. Well, and sometimes we put too much pressure because you know, the love languages, they call it quality time. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with the quality time is good, but I think time is better than quality time. Yes. Um, because quality time happens with time. You know, if, if your goal is quality time and you just spend any amount of time or like consistently, the quality will come. But if you kind of have in the back of your head, like, oh, we need to do something that's quality and deep and meaningful, then the pressure is going to kind of keep you avoiding it. That's you know? true. Yeah. Rather just, just spend the time together and the quality will come. Those conversations, those moments, those interactions will come. Yeah. And I, I think it's awesome what you're doing this podcast, man. I think uh, these conversations are so good. And, uh, the way fatherhood happens is something I'm so excited about being a dad one day. I got to tell you, I'm super excited. (laughs) It's a very, very, very rewarding experience. I remember how scared I was at the very, very beginning. Um, and I do remember the words that, you know, at one point in time I decided to, uh, my, 
things between my own father and I were very, very strained. And at, at the time I asked him this question, I was testing him more than anything. And I, he, he definitely passed that one test where I was, I asked him, you know, what I, I, I let him know, you know, I was, I was, I was scared and I felt unprepared uh, to step into that role. And I asked him, you know, what, what wisdom and what advice do you have? And, and he was very blunt with me about the first part and that, you know, he says the first part, the first year, he says, it's going to be really, really rough. He says, there's no sugar coating, sugar coating it. He goes, it's, <laughs> he, and he's, he just flat out said, it's going to be miserable. Your first year, you're going to be very, very miserable. You're probably not going to enjoy it very much. It's not going to be a lot of fun at all. That's just the truth. But he said, stick with it, get past that first year, because every single year after that just gets better and better and sweeter and sweeter. And he's right. He was, he was right about every part of it. It does get better and better. And there, and these moments happen more often where I just look back at the two of them and I just think, wow, I feel so, so rich having them around. They've enriched my life more than than I could ever, ever imagine. And then after a while I feel dumb because I look back to when it all started and how I felt. And I thought, what was <laughs> I so scared of? <laughs> These are some amazing, amazing boys. Anyway, so yes, that's he is absolutely, absolutely right about that. So so in closing, I want to just kind of just recap a little bit the challenge just being there for, for your child and making yourself available and not stressing out about whether that time is quality or not. I think, I think Josh was a hundred percent right with that. So, so with that, I'd like to, to close and, and wrap with a prayer if that's all right with you. Yeah. Would you like me to pray? Yes, absolutely. Sure. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, I want to thank you so much that uh, you in fact are our father. You, you see us as your kids and you love us. And in I, in my own life, you've created so many spaces of growth and so many good men who who've helped me become better than I would have been. Lord, I thank you for your patience and for your love. And I pray that each man listening to this will be changed, will take a step closer uh, to you, and will become more and more like you each day. Thank you for your love, God, in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with me, Josh. I really appreciate all of your time. It was it was so rewarding and so insightful. And um, I've always learned from you, and, and this time was no exception. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was, a, it was an honor to be here. And thank you so much for listening, uh, listening to this podcast and listening to this episode. I am very appreciative of, of your time, the fact that you took the time to come here and listen. So thank you so much. If you enjoyed the show and are getting value out of it, there are two ways you can support this podcast. One is by hitting the follow option on your favorite listening app. This will make it easier to see all the episodes and receive notifications when a new episode is released. The other is by checking out some of the swag in our store. They make great gifts for the holiday, a birthday, or any reason and they help spread the word about this great movement. The link to the store is in the show description below. Thank you for your support, and I'll see you in the next episode.